Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today we are speaking with author Peyton Garland. Peyton is a writer, wannabe rapper, and a coffee shop hopper who loves connecting people to a grace much bigger than expected. Her debut book, Not So By Myself, was promoted by former White House press secretary Dana Perino and endorsed by TED Talk speaker and creator of the More Love Letters movement, Hannah Brencher. She lives in Colorado with her husband and her two gremlin dogs. We talked all about the topics that I love to talk about here, shifting from perfection to grace and how this was initiated by a good friend who gave her permission to ask for help and support, which led to three different diagnoses from a mental health professional. And this then opened up the door to letting go of bitterness and perfectionism and shame, which led to embracing the term grace. Once Peyton had done this work, then dove into deciding how to open this door for others. And this led to her writing her book, Not So By Myself. We talked all about shame, letting go of it, the weight of it, and how we can make a difference in others' lives when we really own this concept of grace. Such a beautiful conversation. And I love how she's continuing to pay it forward and impact others talking all about grace over perfection. You're going to absolutely love this episode. Welcome to the show today, Peyton. It's so nice to meet you. Yes. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Can you tell people where you are from? I am from LaGrange, Georgia, which is a small town just 60 miles south of Atlanta. But right now I am living in the Colorado Springs area with my husband, Josh, and our two terrible dogs, Alfie and Daisy. <laughs> Did you say terrible dogs? That's They're hilarious. terrible. They are so cute, but they are nightmares. What kind are they? Uh, they're both mutts. They're both rescue pups. So Alfie okay. is an 80 pound brindle American Staffordshire mix. So he looks a lot like a pit bull. And then Daisy, she showed up on our porch. So she's a true rescue. She is a red healer mixed with possibly a Jack Russell. She's over here snoozing beside me right now, but she is this beautiful speckled color, but she is overweight and she has a crooked eye. So, um, she is a very eclectic looking critter. (laughs) She's, but she's my little sausage ball. I love her dearly. Oh, I love dogs. Mine is not here today, which is why I try and do more podcasts on this day because (laughs) it can be just an unbelievable. Hey, I'm all about real. This is all real. So it's not, it's all good. It's all good. That's awesome. Can you tell everyone what is the superpower of yours? Oh, I think a superpower of mine. I guess if I I try to put humility aside, I would say being able to discern people, I think it's a spiritual gift of mine. And I, 
I love when I get to meet people and within just 10 seconds of conversation, I can go, oh, that's a genuine person. Oh, that person means what they say. And I think that's that's not only a gift, but it's a blessing for me because I've been able to make some wonderful conversations, wonderful friendships based off of just a five second interaction with somebody. That's a great superpower. Now, how did you get to be so good at that? Oh, I, mm, I think to be totally honest, I grew up in a Christian school. I grew up in an unhealthy church culture. And so mm-hmm. I think I was very able to see what was genuine and then what was not, what was done out of love and what was done behind the law. And I think growing up in a more legalistic background allowed me to see who was really fulfilling love and then who was just hiding behind a bunch of rules. I love, thank you for sharing that because honestly, that is such a big thing. So many people, when, when I hear them say they're able to read people quickly, they're able to discern, they're able to see people for more of who they are. And that's not a judgment. That's just, I understand that's, I do understand that a lot of times that comes from having lived in, I don't want to say chaos, but having lived in Mm -hmm. some kind of chaos and then almost always having to be ready for what's next or being able to read people to know and anticipate what might be coming next. And I didn't learn this until I was an adult and I went, okay, now I understand. Now I understand because I can, this very similar, I find I can read people very quickly. Yeah. And I think it's great that you say that because my dad, he served in the military for 24 years and he ended up having PTSD and three different counts of traumatic brain injury. So, you know, seven or eight years old, I'm trying to figure out who my dad is now with, with all of these brain injuries. So I learned a lot about perceiving, about pausing, letting someone else lead conversation, reading a room, and it's been quite the blessing. Wow. That is a great, thank you for sharing that with us. I, there's so many things. Tell us a little bit about your early part of your story, if you can. Sure. So, you know, I shared a little bit of it. I grew up in a very rigid church culture. I grew up as a a Christian school kid where there were even more rules at home. I had a dad who was diagnosed with PTSD, but he wasn't diagnosed for the first seven years. And so I grew up with a dad who wasn't my daddy, that wasn't the man I I knew and loved. And so everywhere I looked, things were kind of gray. Mm -hmm. I I think as a seven or eight year old child, I was already an adult in so many ways because I had to read the room at home, read the rules at school. And and I learned nothing was feeling very free. I, I saw love as something you had to earn. Love is something you had to tiptoe around when someone wasn't themselves. And so me as a child was actually me as an adult. I had to grow up very quickly, at least from a mental perspective. Mm -hmm. I completely understand that and relate on a different level, but I do completely understand that. And if you think about that, I mean, we are still barely scratching the surface with PTSD and many different mental health issues. And if you think about it now, like think of how many years ago that was, it's almost sad in a sense, because it just was not talked about, understood looked at. Um, I'm sure it was something that was very, it's still frowned and has this shame connotation to any, a lot of mental health issues do. And which is so unfortunate because then we're just not talking about, we're not talking about it. No, I think that's so true. My great grandfather served in world war II. all three mm-hmm. of my great uncles and my grandfather served in Vietnam. My dad served after nine 11. Mm-hmm. And so I come from generation after generation of the idea 
that silence is strength, that if you don't talk about it, you're strong enough to handle it. And I have learned that is, <laughs> that is so far from the truth. Okay. We might've been separated at birth for different reasons, but I do have to say, <laughs> <laughs> because I grew up with like silence, what strength you literally just, you, you zip it down and you put your foot forward and you just keep going. And that it works until it doesn't, right? It works right. when you're in, when you're a child in that environment, what happens is, is you learn how to survive. That's your survival mechanism. But then there comes a point that it's, you carry that with you everywhere. And that's not a great way to function in the, in the world. So how did, how did that play out in your life, holding on and using that armor? Kind of like how you just said it works until it doesn't work. And usually when it doesn't work, it's pretty dramatic. It's a big thing because it has to catch you off guard. It has to catch you on your toes for you to go, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. For me, you know, I was the Christian school kid. I was the good girl. I was the valedictorian of my high school class. I was the sorority girl in college who was worshiped because she was pretty much the only virgin of the group. I was, I was checking all of these virtuous, good glorified boxes, but about a year and a half into being married, being the the newlywed wife, I, I started battling a lot of mental health problems. And I don't think I actually started battling them. I think they were just building up because what I noticed was in adulthood, life gets a lot harder. You're juggling a lot more things. When you drop the ball, it's a much bigger consequence than when you were the valedictorian or the, you know, the college girl. Mm -hmm. So I was finally in this adult world where every decision actually did matter and, and the, everything was weightier and perfection wasn't working. It was impossible. I was dropping the ball. My mind felt so heavy. Life felt very dark. I, I woke up looking forward to going to sleep And once my husband became a pilot and left home and I was by myself all the time, all the monsters came out of my closet and the, the perfectionist valedictorian good girl ended up in a therapist's office. And I walked away with three diagnoses. I walked away with intrusive thought, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, and secondary PTSD. So that is, that is when silence is strength just did not work for me anymore. Wow. Could you talk to us a little bit about just to share, to open up that dialogue, what did life look like as you recognize and were being given these diagnoses? What brought you to that point to go in to look and ask for help? And how did it feel when you ended up getting these diagnoses? I eventually went because I had a very honest friend. And I think that's crucial. This, this is a woman who was having coffee with me one day while my husband was gone states and states away. And before I could even sit down to drink my coffee, she said, you're not okay. What's wrong with you? You've lost too much weight since I last saw you. Your hands are shaking. I don't know if you know this, but but your coffee cup is rattling. You look hollow. What's wrong with you? And I think having someone so close to me who loved me so well say, hey, you're not okay. I finally had to look at the truth. I had been pushing behind me. I had been pushing that away in the back of my head. No, you're okay. You're fine. Be quiet. Pull up your bootstraps. Keep marching. Yeah. And then to have someone from the outside say, yeah, no, like you look bad. <laughs> you're not okay, but I love you enough that let's figure something out. That's what led me to therapy. And mm-hmm. then 
you know, I, I thought walking away with, you know, three mental health diagnoses would, would create shame for me, would create bitterness with my past, but it was a breath of relief for me because now I could put a finger to what was going on in my mind. Mm-hmm. Now it wasn't just Peyton. It was, oh, we've got some chemical misfires up there, but, but there are wonderful therapists, there are medications, and now we actually have a battle plan to move forward with our mental health. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And yes, I think it's a, almost a, a perfect storm where that person shows up and is willing to say, you're not okay right now. And when you are the perfectionist hand up here, when you spend your life as the perfectionist, um, you don't want to be seen that way. You don't want to be seen that you don't have it all together, you know, but there's also this level of permission that it's like, Oh wait, you can see that. Like you can see that. And maybe, maybe I should take a look and maybe I should get some support or ask some questions. So it is that perfect storm where you have the right person who gives you that permission, but you're also open to, yeah, to looking. And so you are able to meet with a therapist, come through and understand what these diagnoses were and what, what did they mean for you? Like what changed for you when this all came to the surface? It finally meant that for the first time in my life, I could accept grace because I knew perfection was no longer possible. So, so perfection and grace are not synonymous. You, you can't have both. You've got to pick one. And for 25 plus years, I was fighting for perfection because I thought that's what the church wanted. That's what my Christian school wanted. That's what my sorority wanted. That's what my husband wanted. And I'm meeting all of these marks that people haven't even put in front of me because we all know we're not perfect. These are impossible standards. And so I was finally able to say, okay, if perfection isn't going to work, let's step into grace. Let's believe that not every church is bad and bitter and filled with rules. Let's try to love the church. Let's try to love people. Mm -hmm. Let's try to, to meet sorority sisters where they are. Let's meet a husband where he is. If he's had a bad day, I was able to give myself grace, but then I was able to give it to other people. And that was the beautiful thing is bitterness was finally getting chipped away for the first time in a long time. Oh, I love that. Thank you. That is such a great um, description. So bitterness was being chipped away. Yeah, for sure. Now, bitterness is something that is actually very heavy to carry. People don't realize that, that that is such a heavy almost this shield, right. That you're carrying yeah. that you're, you're carrying, no one's giving you. And I love that you said earlier that you felt almost like everybody else was expecting it, but then you realize they're not accept, expecting it. That was, those were my expectations. No, exactly. It's a very unhealthy force field. You want people to, it's almost like social distancing, mental health style. You want people to stay six feet away from you because the further you stay away from them, the more likely you are to not hurt them or do something wrong. It's very isolating and you think it's for a moral noble reason and all you're doing is hurting yourself. Mm-hmm. What a great definition. Honestly, thank you. That really, I know that that will land for so many people. And when you are a perfectionist, a pusher, fighter, all of those things, grace is a really hard thing to accept because mm-hmm. it did it ever feel that there was, that it's almost weakness or did you pretty much decide, like, as soon as you got the diagnosis, was it that, nope, this feels good. Like how, what was that time? Like it felt unfair because as a perfectionist, I, I felt like I should bring more to the table always. And and it felt like someone was giving me a, a, 
a green light to not be perfect. And as a perfectionist who had to work towards accepting and perfection, my initial thought was, no, these people deserve more. No, I've still got to show up. It's not fair that I take a step back and potentially make mistakes and hurt someone else or impact someone else negatively. And so for me, it was shame initially. The diagnosis was a breath of relief because I can now name the monsters in my closet, but accepting that I could be imperfect and that could be okay. That was something where I had to fight shame for quite some time. What a great, what a great explanation. So how did you fight that shame? How did you fight? Because obviously that's not the answer, but how (laughs) did you work through that holding that shame? How did you work through the hold that it had on you? I let myself sit in my mistakes. I I didn't honor them. I tried my best not to repeat them, but I let myself sit in them, which means, you know, if, if I said something I shouldn't have to my parent or my husband on a bad day, I, I would sit with myself for a minute or two and process what I said, why I said it, where it came from. And then I would apologize and I would own it. I would say, Hey, I'm not in a good headspace today. And, and I just, thank you for loving me. And I respect you enough that I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. If I sent the the wrong email at work because I wasn't paying attention like I should, I don't white lie my way through excuses. Oh, oh, I, I misread something. No, I read something and then was too lazy to reread it. And so I just say, hey, you know what? I'm I didn't read something like I was supposed to, and I'm sorry. And so what I do is I allow myself to sit in mistakes. I don't make excuses for them. I don't dodge them. I just say, hey, I'm I'm imperfect, and today was one of those days. And people have been so gracious. That's the neat thing is when you're honest, even if you mess up, mm-hmm. people can respect you for that. They really can. And that is, it's, I'm so glad you went there with this because like, even with the name of this podcast is own your choices on your life, because that means owning, like owning your behavior, your choices, yeah. your mistakes, your th- whatever. And it's the second you come from that space of ownership, you're not in a blame space. It's pretty hard to argue with that. It's like, yeah, I, right. I totally made a mistake. It did. I did, but it's, I will do my best not to do the same mistake. Can't promise that I won't. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Truth's always honorable, even if it's the truth you don't want to hear. Right. Right. So you went through this process. You learned how to let go of the shame piece of it. And as you did that, how did your voice shift or your messaging or like, how did you shift as a person? Because we know shame is literally suffocating. It is a suffocating emotion that stops and squashes your voice. Yeah. Shame and bitterness work together really, really well. It's very subtle and you don't process it, but the more shame you place on yourself, the heavier you feel and the easier it is to be bitter. With my husband, my mental health took a huge spiral once he became a pilot and he had to temporarily live away from home, states away, hours away. I had just moved to a new town to start a new job. So I was all by myself. And this was that really lonely season. And so in my marriage for a while, I was blaming him for what all I was going through. So I was, I was completely bitter with him. And I feel like I started noticing the positive shift, breaking away from shame, owning imperfection. When my mom jokingly, but truly said one day, she said, you know, I think you actually like him again, but you, you, you two are are now looking at each other the same way you did when you were dating, you were being gracious, you were being patient. And my mother is so honest. She's honest to a fault. And that's why I love and respect her so much. Mm -hmm. And I think when she came forward and said that, 
not only did I have to go, oof, like that's bad. <laughs> People thought I didn't even like my own husband, but no bitterness, bitterness can drive you there. And it will do it quietly. It will do it slowly. And often you don't realize it's done until there's a ton of damage, but I have such a gracious husband who is so kind and wonderful and, and I'm happy to be married to him. I must say <laughs> at this point in my life. <laughs> That's beautiful. If you're listening, it's beautiful. I love it. I love it. Oh, so as you, and I love what you do in the sense that you talk about grace so much. So isn't it almost ironic that the thing that you resisted the most is what you do and you can help so many other people with now? Yeah, I think that is the true beauty from Ash. I think I came from that place and it's very isolating and it is dark and it is lonely and it is so full of shame that I think one of the most honoring things I could do is turn around and sling that door open for someone or turn on that flashlight and say, no, like there, there's more coming. There's hope. We're going to keep pressing forward. It's going to be messy. It's going to require you to not be perfect. But that's the great thing is our imperfection is what can launch grace and goodness and forgiveness and even creativity and adventure. And what an honor to be that person to point and say, no, this is, this is the right way to go. You're fine. Messing up as you go is totally acceptable. Yeah. I absolutely love that. There's a couple of things you said there, because I do think it's our imperfections that connect us to each other. Like it's not our perfections, it's which isn't even exist, but it's our imperfections. And the second thing I love when you talked about is that like, when you find your way through the door, you can keep walking or you can choose to hold it open for the one behind you. Because when you pass that on, it's like that learned knowledge. It's once you've learned your way through the door, then holding on to that knowledge is not going to serve you because you already know the way. So what if it can help somebody else out who is stuck in the doorway trying to find their way through? You know, I think that's a great point because I, I come from Georgia. I come from the deep South where it's chivalry is not dead by any means. And I know growing up, I thought it was so kind when a man who did not know me from Adam would hold the door open for me, make eye contact, smile, mm-hmm. nod, and let me go first. And I think there's a beauty to doing that for others, to stopping and waiting for them to get there, to making eye contact, nodding, saying, I see you. I validate you. This is the way. Keep going. You're good. You're safe. I'm right behind you. I think there is such a freedom that comes with that, that who would I be to, to turn around and let the door shut in someone else's face? I couldn't agree more. That is so beautiful. As you do this then, so you went from feeling this weight of perfectionism, this bitterness to having a friend open up a door for you, being able to receive it, going through your diagnosis, learning grace, now sharing this grace with others. Where was the next step after that? Because we do want to talk about your book and what you do, but how did you get from that next leap? I had to continue just saying, Hey, I'm going to be imperfect because I think what happens is people is even when the place of arrival is, Hey, I don't have to be perfect. We've never fully arrived because we're humans and we are imperfect. And so once I was finally in this healthy rhythm of, of giving grace, getting grace, speaking kindness to my husband, providing patience for terrible drivers on the road. Once I wasn't so bitter that everyone was just feeling my wrath, mm-hmm. other things would still come up and they were hard things. And I know personally, when my little from my sorority, I found out about a month ago, she committed suicide. And I think it's one of those things where shame very quickly said, Hey, this is your niche. Mental health is your niche. Why didn't you catch this? If you loved her, like you should, 
you would have picked up on the anxiety or the depression. What was going on that you didn't know? And regardless of what it was, this is where you hold the door open well. So how could you drop the ball with someone you love, someone who is the biggest light and laughter for you in your early 20s? And I think it's just going to be, you know, the next step is always going to be the next step for me. It is always going to be, you are imperfect, Peyton. You are imperfect, Peyton. And sometimes it's going to be in very simple ways. And sometimes it's going to be wrestling with why you weren't there for someone who literally didn't see life worth living. Oh, first off, I'm very sorry for yeah. the loss of your friend. That is just, we do not have to go very far nowadays yeah, to sure. hear these stories. We really don't. And right. this is part of what concerns me, that's actually the pandemic that is coming. Right. No, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I, I, I see it so much from people, from clients and just people being impacted. So first off, I'm sorry for that. That Thank is just, you. that's a lot to carry. Secondly, I've been in a very similar situation and you can only do what you can do as you continue to share and talk about, you know, grace and, and being there for each other. And let's talk about these things. You can hold the door open, but people still have to come to the door and it's hard. So all we can, I think all we can do is continuing to open up these conversations to normalize talking about these difficult things so that it doesn't seem like such a shameful topic for people. Right. Yeah. And I think the, the opposite of shame for me has been freedom. And so one of the ways I kind of had to dig out of my own hole of shame, once I I heard of her passing was, was to free myself to live and to love and to laugh again. And I think she was, she was a laugher. She was one of the funniest people I knew her laugh was loud and guttural and healing. And I've found that the honor, despite the loss and the shame I feel is that because of her, I get, I get to live well and I get to continue sharing grace. And it's not just my story. Now it's her story too. Mm-hmm. It's such an honor to let her story live on through me. And I think that's the thing is shame is always going to show up, but we have to be very proactive and choosing to grab the shovel and dig our way out of our own holes. Mm-hmm. That's a, such a great, Oh, I love everything you're saying because shame doesn't go away. It's like our response to, it never goes away. Like those emotions never go away, how we respond to it, which is one of the things I wanted to ask you um, is the difference between responding and reacting as a perfectionist. Holy, can I react to everything around me? (laughs) I'm just like, I'm like reflecting back and laughing at myself because I reacted to everything, which meant Mm -hmm. I was just constantly spewing energy and in all different directions. And like, I had to really learn and embody the difference from reacting and responding. So I just wanted to ask you your thoughts on those two words. (laughs) Number one, if I had a dollar for every time my husband elbows me in public and says, stop making that face. Oh my God. (laughs) Quit. I don't know if you know that you're doing this, but stop. Reaction is very quick for me. It is instant. It's genuine, but that doesn't mean it's always kind or, or necessary. So yes, I, I am a reactor because that's where discernment kicks in. I see something and very quickly I can call it what it is. And my body engulfs that energy. And then I respond to truth. So, so what's true here? Is it an ugly truth? Is it a pretty truth? Mm -hmm. But I think with, with saying, Hey, we're not going to just react to a situation. We're going to respond. What I have found myself doing is trying, and it is so hard, but just giving myself five seconds, just hold off for five seconds. 
Uh, my therapist tells me, Hey, put your hand on your heart and remember you're a human. Feel your heartbeat. It'll ground you. It'll remind you you are human. Mm-hmm. And then kind of what'll happen is you'll realize they're human too. Wh- whatever happened with that person, their heart's beating in their chest, just like yours. And you have no clue the space they're walking in that day. And I, tr- I try to reflect on that. I give myself five seconds where I'm like, don't just don't say anything, sit in your anger for a second, let it spike, then let it simmer back down. Mm-hmm. And, and just remember that your heartbeat and their heartbeats just the same. And you've got to give them some grace because what it'll actually do is give you grace in return. Yes. 100%. It will give you grace and you can give them grace. They may not receive that. They may right. not see that they may, they actually may not be interested at all in it, which is fine. <laughs> But it gives you grace from being in space because a very common message that comes in my inbox is how do I get them to see it? How do I get them to understand? How do I get them to change? I'm like, um, all of the above, you don't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, you can't control other people. No, no. I'm only laughing. I'm so sorry for laughing. But when you said that earlier, because <laughs> <No>. <laughs> literally, I cannot tell you how many times we'll be somewhere. And my husband will elbow me and he's like, your face, fix your face, fix your face. And I'm like, what's wrong with my face? And he's like, I have no clue. Right. (laughs) He's like, it's a zero poker face, like zero, zero poker face. It is what it is. It shows up. And then I'm like, oh wait, oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. I just, yeah, I could just, anyways, I could not stop laughing when you said that. So that was just too perfect. Love it. Um, So this led eventually to you writing your book. Tell us about your book. My book is called Not So By Myself. Mm -hmm. And after that really intense season of my husband being gone for about three, three and a half months, um, you know, while I was in a new town working a new job, that's when I got diagnosed with all my mental health stuff. When that season was finally over and, and he was back home and I now knew what OCD and secondary PTSD and anxiety were. There was, there was a healthier rhythm. I could feel the the storm finally calming and I just felt led. It just was a thought I couldn't shake. Hey, you need to share this with somebody else. Hey, you need to share this with somebody else. It's something I didn't come up with on my own. It's something that I couldn't let go of once it showed up. And so I said, okay, this is, this is kind of serious. This sounds like something worth writing about. And I think the miracle of it is I started writing this book two and a half weeks before a global pandemic, where I'm sharing my story of loneliness, you know, with mental health, with being a pilot's wife. And now the entire globe goes, Hey, wait, I'm by myself. I'm not okay. My brain's not okay. What is going on? And so the book came out in November of 2020, which was such a a wonderful time because you know, people were still scared. We still didn't have the answers. We still didn't know what was going on. But the beautiful thing is I could say, Hey, I have been bumbling through a season of loneliness all my own. I know what darkness Mm -hmm. is. I know what it looks like to not have answers Mm -hmm. to question why, to question why people aren't loving each other. Well, in this season to, to question why you're not loving yourself like you should. And I think that's been the, the wonderful part of this book is I couldn't have anticipated the level of loneliness and mental health struggles the whole planet would face literally two and a half weeks after I began sharing mine. Wow. So that became even more and more fuel for you. Oh, for sure. Right. It was, it also became a thing where my publisher said, Hey, we don't know how long the pandemic's going to last. So if you could write this really fast, not that we want COVID to stay, but if you can beat the, you know, if you can beat the, the wave before COVID ends from a marketing perspective, this is glory for us. (laughs) Lots of salesy things, but lots of 
soul-filled things for sure too. It's, it's been an honor. That's great. And since it has come out, you've actually have a number of endorsements here about your book, which is amazing. Tell us about that. So I, I work with Hannah Brencher. She's a Ted talk speaker, creator of the more love letters movement. She's a three-time bestselling author. I helped her launch a book. She was my, my big book idol when I was younger. And I pointed at her and said, I want to be her. I met her. She was genuine and loving. She invited me into her home and helped me craft the outline of my book. So it was an honor to have her on the other side of the finish line. And then through my job, I used to help do some PR. I got to talk with Fox News host and former White House press secretary, Dana Perino. She said, sure, you know, I'm happy to read your book. She'd sent me something. I wanted to share my book with her. Two weeks later, she says, hey, I love it. Can I share it? And you know, I'm like, yes, (laughs) go for it. So these two women have been so just they're so full of wisdom and and genuineness and friendship. And so it's been very, very neat, not just because they both have rather big titles and statuses, but to see behind those titles, they are real people has been such a blessing and has has meant a lot to me personally. That's beautiful. So I I love that. And again, they've been holding the door open. Like we're just back to they've been holding that door open. And I think that that's another beautiful thing. You, you have a study companion with your book. Is that right? Yes. So I just launched the study companion in January. So it it shares a lot about my faith as well in the middle of this, because I had a lot of church trauma. I had to figure out who is God. Do I believe he's good? Do I, do I believe everything I've been told Mm -hmm. for years? And so I do a lot of delving into that. And I had so many people ask if I could create kind of a study group companion where people can meet and discuss and so I launched that in January that all that information's on my website, but it has video materials, written materials, journaling spaces, note taking. So for all the people who love their color coordinated highlighters, I've got you covered. Yeah, that's, that's my gift set. <laughs> I love that stuff. That's awesome. I will make sure that all of that is in the show notes. What is next for you? So I just a week and a half before Christmas, I had a publisher offer me a contract for a second book. And so I'm in the process of book number two, which is going to be called tired, hungry, and kind of faithful. So Mm -hmm. it is hopefully coming out towards the end of this year, possibly the beginning of 2023, but I I am nose to the laptop writing away these days. Good for you. Is this your full-time job now? Oh, it's not. So I work two full-time jobs and I write. So I, I create content for an international law firm and I'm an editor for a digital Christian magazine. And, oh, so, no. and then I write. <laughs> okay. So anybody who's listening right now, all of your excuses just literally went out the window, not out of comparison, just as a reminder, when you want to write, like you can do it if you are committed right. to doing it. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. When I wrote my book in 2017, I was still in a very big midst of chaos in my own life, but I was working full time trying to figure things out and, and I wrote it. And I I can say a lot of that year was dedicated to writing, editing, doing all the things. Yes. And it was interesting because it was when people say, you know, is it hard to write a book? Is it all of these? Things? I'm like, it's commitment. You have to, you have to be committed yes. to it because it is not something it's not easy by any means. It's not right. easy but it's an incredibly great way to share your story, to help others, to reach more people, to do all the things. 
Right. It's been therapy in and of itself. It's it's an honor to get to continue to do this. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Wow. Wow. I cannot wait to hear about (laughs) that. That is awesome. I love everything that you've shared today. And I think that there's such a value, especially right now about grace over perfection. I really, really do. And I think the more that we can give ourselves grace, especially when we are dealing in a pandemic, we're dealing in challenging times is important. And if you can't, there's something, cause this has been a hard lesson for me to learn very vulnerably, just saying it's not an easy thing for me to learn is I surround myself with people who remind me all the time, right? So oh, yes. stop doing it alone. Stop doing it alone. For sure. Yeah. My, my husband is so key in that. My friend who looked at me and said, Hey, you're not okay. I was texting her this morning. That's my mm-hmm. friend, Wendy. We, we keep close tabs on each other yeah. and it is hard work, but it is soul work. That's how I've heard it put before. Soul work is hard work, but it's always worth it. It's always worth it. It's always worth it. Everything that we talk about on this podcast is really about learning how to not be stuck in your story, but how to be on your story and the power of being on your story. Can you just share even a couple sentences, how your life has changed from being in that story, letting shame consume you to being in this space where you are now? It's been this beautiful realization that I still don't control my story. I don't have the 20,000 foot view as my pilot husband would say, but I have the ability to be hands-on on the ground, loving people, despite the shame and the hardship that will continue to come. And so if I wake up each day with the perspective that you will not be perfect, but you can perfectly show up for somebody with honesty and goodness, mm-hmm. that's that's a day well done. That's That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I love it. Um, I will make sure that everything is in the show notes of where to connect with you. Where do you hang out the most? I hang out a lot on Instagram. If you want to see videos of my dogs fighting each other, if you want any updates, I I do a medication update, a friendly reminder every month, take your meds. Thank God Mm -hmm. for your meds with my OCD. I do a lot of mental health talks there. Show off my very cute pilot husband, and my husband and I are renovating a school bus. We're turning it into a schoolie. So if you want to check out some stuff oh. about Bonnie Bluebird, our, our school bus baby. So the Instagram name is at Peyton M. Garland author. Mm-hmm. If you want to find out more about the book, Amazon's going to be your quickest way to get it. But I do have a website, PeytonGarland.me. And that's where you can find all the information about signed copies of the book, as well as the study companion. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. This has been such a joy. Honestly, I feel like I'm part mirror looking in a mirror and seeing that reflection. I get it. I have one more question for you is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? Oh, I think I am most grateful for the lesson that the second I am vulnerable about my imperfections is the second someone else can go, Oh, I'm not the only one. Mm. And I think that is one of the greatest honors of my life is giving everyone else that breath of relief. Yeah. You, you literally are creating more and more permission for other people to not expect perfection. And you're continuously holding the door open for the women behind you. And I think it's an absolutely beautiful movement. And I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed and I cannot wait to read your book and to share this episode with everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. 
I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.